Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is the 9th of the 6th, a glorious Wednesday. Michael, how have you been? Oh, I've been fine, Gary, thank you. How have you been? Oh, I've been good. Just a, a small thing before we go into today's stories. Got a, a comment from one of the listeners who had listened to the uh, the podcast we did, Michael, where we were talking about politicians and expenses, which is strange because that podcast was, I think, a while ago. And it always strikes me as a bit odd that people listen to current affair podcasts that far back. But then again, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I'm just a, a dumb animal screaming into the void in a manner that people apparently like occasionally. So anyway, people listen to podcasts in that way now. Fair enough. He was making the point that we were just complaining about expenses because we didn't want politicians to be paid and we wanted them to be dressed in sackcloth and basically, you know, you know, you pay peanuts, you're going to get monkeys kind of argument. And I just wanted to respond to that by basically saying that I actually don't have an issue with politicians being more highly paid. What I have an issue with is the usage of expenses as a substitution for that wage. Yeah. That's my concern here. If you want to put up, if they want to double their wages, fair enough. The public can judge that for what it is. But once you start accepting that people can use expenses as wages, then it just, it's very easy to uh, move stuff around, make increases that people just don't see. So they can't make decisions based on. Though I will say, Michael, that uh, based on what I've seen recently of Irish politicians going to meet with their foreign peers... There is one expense I, I definitely think we need to put in place that is not currently in place for Irish politicians. Which is? A tailoring allowance. Oh, a decent suit, yeah. I mean, Michael, you see these people, and particularly, you know, the British, the French, they tend to be very well-dressed, very nicely tailored suits, and our lads turn in, and, like, it's not even a child finding their father's suit in a closet, but it's on broadly that level. And it's not hard to get a suit tailored. And it's very cheap. We just don't do it. So I think there needs to be an explicit expense for that. Because God knows if there's an expense for it, they're going to claim it. Uh, there's no way, of course, that would ever happen. Because that would just give people flashbacks to the days of Charlie and his Charvet shirts. Which people really seem to hate more than anything else. The fact that he had good shirts. You should make it clear. It's not even necessarily the expenses that one is objected to, but rather that the proposal, or rather the the concern that was being that we were talking about in the context of the story was that a change was being made in order to allow people to claim for expenses when they were on leave, because nothing was going to if you're if you if you were pregnant and you were a TD, all you had to do was sign in once and then you get your your, your pay would come in automatically. You never actually had to go to the doll. The problem was that you weren't going to get the expenses that you would have had. But since the expenses are the expenses are normally things that you get paid for, as does the costs that you incur in the execution of your duties, this seemed to be a way of people getting expenses when they weren't supposedly going about their duties. So that seemed to be, to us, to be anonymous. Anomalous. As regards the payment to TD, I'm actually the other side of that argument. I'm all for paying the people who run the country lavishly. Uh, Sam Bowman, I think it's Sam Bowman, has a, one of his pet theories is that we don't pay uh, politicians, or at least, shall we say, senior politicians, cabinet ministers or prime ministers, Tishi, whatever, anything like enough. I think the prime minister of Singapore is paid something like half a million a year. I think one of the worst ideas we've heard 
this year. Possibly the worst, Michael, but it's it's hard. It's it's been a it's been a solid year for terrible ideas. So we've had a couple of NGOs doing what NGOs do best, which is going to Oroctus committees and just spewing nonsense. But this was an interesting one, because this was the director of the Irish Travellers Movement, the ITM. Now, they went to the Committee on uh, Housing and Local Government. They were talking about how you increase voter participation amongst underrepresented groups. The ITM are looking for candidates who use what they call discriminatory rhetoric to be held to account, Michael. But then they start saying that maybe in these cases, uh, these people should be removed from the ballot, from the ballot of people you vote for. Which is to say, Michael, that an NGO is publicly advocating to give the government the power to remove electoral candidates from the race. Now, Michael... I'm a simple man on a simple podcast, but it strikes me that accepting that principle and giving the government that power is monumentously fucking stupid. Well, I could, you could see how it might, it just might go wrong giving one set of politicians the right to decide on whether another set of politicians should be allowed to run for election. I could see that that could go wrong. And I mean, it starts with hate speech, but if you accept the general principle that government has the right to do this, uh, why would it stop a hate speech? Surely there are other things, Michael, which are, you know, simply unacceptable in a civic society, in a, in a responsible society. Yeah, no, you should, we should just say that what the actual phrase that's as reported is used is racism, sexism, or other hate speech. So it's racism, sexism, or other hate speech. Now, it seems to me that's a, that's probably a bag big enough to fit in whatever the hell you like and more of what you're having yourself. I, I don't think that anybody with a degree of imagination would have a problem generating a, a good argument against anybody that was expressing any particularly trenchant opinion about anything. That, I'm sorry, that kind of language... That's that's unacceptable. I think, Michael, if we were to accept that, and we were to say the hate speech has to be banned because it's, it's an assault on one of the underlying pillars of democracy, and any candidate who assaults these pillars should be removed from office, or you know, from the electoral register. I think if we accept that principle, and you give you know, a good five minutes, I feel a good political advisor can come up with a couple of ways to use that that were not intended. Like, for instance, one could argue that anyone proposing this policy should find themselves censored by this policy because they're undermining a key pillar of democracy and freedom of association and the idea that the public can elect people, Michael, who other people may not approve of and may think are immoral or, you know, repugnant in some way. Because that's the odd thing about democracy. That you have to accept the people's votes, even though they are bastards who routinely vote for the wrong things. Yeah, that's the problem with them. The bastards will keep voting for the wrong people. Uh, and there's almost nothing you can do about it. You're not allowed to beat them anymore. You're not, you're, not, you're not allowed to take their children away and keep them until they promise to behave. You're not even allowed to bribe them. Uh, I don't know what the hell you're supposed to do now to get 
elect the electorate to behave correctly. Uh, virtually any reasonable inducement has been taken away. So we just have to accept that they're always going to could just vote for the wrong bastards. Whereas they need to actually start voting for our bastards. Well, yes, if they were any way reasonable at all. That that's what exactly they would do. And, you know, it's not hard to work out who, who the right people are. All you have to do is read a newspaper. It's really not complicated. We make these things as easy as we possibly can. Can I just ask a question? I'm asking in a genuine interest of open inquiry. Um, do, this there was a this was a, a chat because they wanted to see how they could get people involved in politics who weren't under involved. Why? I mean, if people don't want you know this thing we're obsessed with getting people. Everybody has to get all oh, the young people aren't voting enough. We have to make it easier. We should maybe you should be able to vote by text. That way, you know, maybe young people would vote. Right? Why? If you are so fucking disengaged and lazy arsed and un unconcerned about the country that you won't walk or drive five minutes to the place where you can put a number on a piece of paper. Why do we want these people getting involved? What if if this is if these are so disengaged, Gary? What reason have we got to believe that they have read a newspaper or read a policy document or listened to a person talking on the television? What, I mean, God knows the people who do vote are bad enough. Frankly, I mean, I would go around with a big stick and paint numbers on these people and see who, who in my opinion, should be allowed to vote or not. But, you know, I recognise that's not going to happen today or tomorrow. But until that happens, you have to recognise the people who are voting are bad enough. Now we want to get all these other crowd in who are fucking function politically in or literally functionally illiterate and encourage them to vote? Why would you want these people voting? I don't understand that. Getting out of their young people, rolling out of their pit in their state their hungover, drugged up state to get them to fumble for their phones so they can text in to vote for whatever mad idea that happens to be fashionable on TikTok that week. I'm trying to be reasonable balanced here, Gary, as you know, but I'm, is there an argument on the other side that you're aware of? I mean, I think the general argument is that, you know, if these people don't vote, their voices won't be represented at the national political level. And how is that anything but a good thing? Well, I think it is also slightly undermined by the point that there are many people who vote whose views are not represented at the national political level anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say there are many, many people who vote, and for all sorts of reasons, whose whose voices are utterly, utterly unconcerned. Uh, in fact, I suspect that there are large numbers of the people who don't vote are better represented than many of the people who do vote. Yeah, I, I mean, I, in relation to Irish votings, I've dealt with it so long on the basis of the lesser evil. But at this point, I struggle to see what the greater evil actually is. Mm. It's just a number of lesser evils of different types at this point. Apparently, the voter registration process is cumbersome and off-putting, particularly because it requires a visit to the guard station. I don't know why that's particularly off-putting. Apparently, it is. Who are we to know? I mean, I will just recount my 
commonly repeated view that too many people can vote and too many people do. <laughs> so you'd roll it back to when? like Before the 1832 Reform Act? Rotten boroughs and just two people voting in a parish and whoever gets the biggest bribe wins? Yes. It's effectively what we have now, but it's cheaper. It's cheaper. It's, it's more transparent. Because mm-hmm. you know people are being bribed, whereas now they tell you they've got democratic legitimacy. And by the way, if you vote for us, we'll uh, increase your payments, or we'll decrease your taxes, or we'll put taxes on people you don't like, or we'll ensure that the, the tax on your property goes up or goes down or goes fucking sideways and spins into the future. Something. It's just self-interest. So if we're going to do that, let's just pick some people, just bribe them, and... We can get rid of all this we've got legitimacy nonsense. It used to be, in the old days at least, you knew who got bribed and you knew who had bribed them. So there was complete transparency. And the chances were it cost an awful lot less in the total bribe. And also, this is the central point, it was it cost the guy bribing him. Whereas in the modern bribing system, it doesn't cost... The guy that's doing the bribing doesn't bribe with his own money anymore, Gary, as you point out. He bribes other people's money. I mean, we could make a more serious point that perhaps some political theorists did say that democracy would die screaming once politicians and the public realised that you can promise unlimited quantities of the public purse to their interests. But that would be that would be too serious for, for this discussion. But if you wanted to learn more, you could read, like, de Tocqueville. It's uh, the document, Schumpeter. They're all, all good stuff. Actually, there's a pretty consistent theme and like people at the looking at the nascent form of democracy going, this is going really well. Bet you it'll go to shit when people realise that they can vote on tax rates. And they can vote tax other people. Tax for other people and money for themselves. And, you know, what? They, they, they found they've... They found out pretty quickly they could do this. There was just one little thing. I, I thought this, I reading the report of this in the Irish Times, um, where it, it, in the same article they were talking about the role of uh, women in office and how we must do more and gender quotas. Um, the 30% of a party's candidates must be women. 30% must be men. Which means that forty percent must be something else, or I don't know, it can be what you, whatever you have yourself. However, guys, I thought it was curious. Uh, there seem to be particular barriers to women getting on the ticket, especially in rural areas. Ms. Lane said, extending extending the gender quota to local elections would force them to look beyond the traditional male-dominated pools, including chambers of commerce, farming. And sporting organisations. So we're going. It, this is it, 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 we're forcing people to look. At, why is it the business of political parties are, as I understand it, voluntary organisations? They're set up. I don't know if you say like they're spontaneously, organically evolving, create self-creating organisations units. There is in. There is in the United Kingdom, I believe, now a women's party, isn't there? Oh, yes, they did set one up. I have no idea if it's still going. or. or... I, I think Sandy Toxvik, the well-known Danish comedian, 
is uh, involved with it, I think is one of the principal spokeswomen for that group. Well, you, you could do that here. I mean, if the Women's Council is really concerned about this, why set up a women's party? Well, now, of course, presumably the strictures would mean the Women's Party would have to run a minimum of 30% men as candidates. But they could use they could run them as token candidates, I suppose. Although it'd be a bit embarrassing if some of the tokens got elected. I don't know. I I I just don't see. I don't like the idea, just in principle, that the government is getting involved this closely in the direction and the organisation of voluntary organisations. I don't think we live in a totalitarian state. I don't think we're anywhere really very close to living in a totalitarian state. But I do observe that one of the most important when the first things that happens in a state which is totalitarian or on the way to becoming one is to occupy voluntary spaces and to replace voluntary organizations with state or state-sponsored ones in germany and in the soviet union for example there was there were no things like boy scouts but beyond boy scouts girl guys even more insidiously, things like bridge clubs, chess clubs, car evenings, all of these things that had previously been privately organised or private organisations, private clubs, they were replaced by state or party-sponsored versions of the same thing. If the state gets involved in every aspect of our lives, both public and private, voluntary and what, for start it demands, Gary, I would say, an ever-increasing state, doesn't it? Well, do, do not strike you that every all of these proposals, everyone, every proposal like this, must involve at some stage eventually the creation of a number of of positions for people who are trained and right-minded in this kind of area to ensure that these regulations are being followed. Independent people, Michael, who can be trusted to carry what would be an incredible level of power in a democratic society if you're able to judge the standards upon which people are allowed to stand for election. Yeah. Well paid, I'm sure, because, well, let's face it, you want to get quality people. Of course, stay funded, because it would have to be independent. Yes, you can't have these things being responsible. With a solid pension, so that no one could be, uh, there could be no you know, pay-for-play or anything like that. Oh, God, absolutely, that's really important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I... Maybe even anonymous <laughs> yeah, I actually I like that idea. Anonymous. Anonymous and gender fluid, so nobody will ever know. And we'll bring you in you know, some people yourself. from solid, you know, good solid uh, NGOs, civil liberty NGOs, Michael, who absolutely wouldn't, uh, you know, can be trusted to, to have the hardest of lines. You might get nominations of suitable people from Amnesty, the ICCL, and the National Women's Council, for example. Happy point. They could all get together as stakeholders, Gary, because they are stakeholders in civic society, and they could maybe make a decision about who should who would be best placed to do these jobs, and to oversee these fundamental roles in maintaining a progressive, open, transparent, uh, egalitarian, equity-based uh, democracy, which is what we all want to see, isn't it? It's, uh, it's the dream, Gary. It's the dream. So, moving on from a terrible idea, 
to a, uh, yeah, let's go a terrible idea, just to keep up the theme. There has been some talk, Michael, from the Germans this time. Germans? That the veto that countries have on certain EU policy matters must be gotten rid of, which is a brave thing for him to say when he was in veto range. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's important that we should, because we hear a lot in Ireland a lot about the veto in, in so far as that touches on the issue of taxation, that any changes to taxation policy or the fact that taxation is considered to be a, an issue for sovereign nations rather than for the EU. That's not what he's talking about, Gary. He's talking about the whole shoot gallery. Oh, shebang. No more vetoes. And he says very generously, Gary, even if that occasionally means that even Germany would be voted down. Yeah, because that's going to happen a lot. We talked before, Michael, about non technically non-hierarchical entities always having internal hierarchies. They're just invisible to outsiders for the most part. I think if we were to argue the EU had one, there would be countries on a certain level, and then there would be countries like, should we say, France or Germany on a entirely different level. And those countries might be able, Michael, to pressure or influence smaller countries one by one in order to get anything they wanted if those countries couldn't veto things. Almost like the veto was designed purely for that purpose, to stop such a situation from uh, from happening and to create a level playing field and people join the EU on that basis. Yeah, that they wouldn't be... It, I, I think we should... If you, you want to... A metaphor. I know how you like a metaphor, guy. It's as if we picture the scene: you have a market, a market on the Saturday, and all the market stalls are there, and you have the policeman. The policeman protects them all against. Uh, they can do what they like, and uh, to a, to a, to a degree, they they're, they're. But then the policeman goes away, and two guys, two big, monstrous, large. Muslim guys called friends of Germany come around and basically said everybody, little the little guy, little Latvian guy selling apples and the little Lithuanian guy selling uh, Swedish porn and little Irish guy selling silicon chips. You do what we say or we're going to break your legs. The thing is, you don't have to break that many legs because the two of them together already make up a hell of a lot of votes anyway. Unless you have the protection... These guys will be. It's it's just mafia politics, not less than mafia politics. You don't do what we'll do. We'll break your legs. Also, this is this isn't even about for once, because the the Germans don't really care so much about the tax thing. The French are obsessed with the tax. French don't like us and the tax. It's not just they don't like the Dutch and the tax either. But this is because the. The Dutch, it's the the Hungarians and the Poles, Gary, seem to be really annoying the Germans these days. And strangely, the Germans, the Hungarians and the Poles, seem to be remarkably willing to accept happily that they're annoying the Germans. It's odd that they're not upset by that. I know, the Hungarians and Poles. There you go. And they've been threatened with uh, sanctions for what is it? They call it's on the rule of law. Rule of law conditions. Yeah, rule of law conditions, and the Poles and the Hungarians saying, "Nah, 
this is what Polish people want, this is what Hungarian people want. Now, I'm not endorsing either the Poles or the Hungarians. There are many things that have happened under Viktor Orban that I would be, if I were a Hungarian, maybe not mad about, and if I was Polish, I wouldn't be mad about there either. But at the end of the day, these are sovereign nations. They may they have elections. They vote for the people. The people win. Uh, but the Germans don't like that because uh, Viktor Orban says the most terrible things. Do you see recently? He said, um, as far as we are concerned, European civilization is is synonymous with Christian civilization, and it is not a. It is, it is our intention that it will that that will always be the case. That kind of rank, nasty, racist, sectarian talk is very upsetting to decent German people. Although, didn't like twelve percent of the country vote for the AFD in two thousand and seventeen? Yeah, yeah. Did you see there's I don't know if you're following it you, you you might you probably missed it the the the, the vote in Saxony Anhalt oh I saw it yeah which a good result for to be fair now for Merkel's crew pretty good result for her but a st- pretty stank stunking result for the AfD well they get twenty four percent very 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 nice result for for the AfD social democrats seem to be just going away like shit in a river. Social democracy is disappearing from the face of Europe, Gary. Except in Ireland, where, it's, where we have nothing but social democrats. Well, we're always a bit behind the times. Or ahead of the times. We just don't know which way, the, which way history is bending, do we? Yeah, the, the AFD are going to be very happy with their, with their uh, showing. For those who don't know, AFD is alternative for Deutschland. They started off principally as dissidents from the CDU, which is the Christian Democratic Party and maybe a couple from the Christian Social Union in Bavaria. And really they started off as a Eurosceptic party. And then a problem, they, there is, people I think miss, they don't, the Germans have a greater degree of Euroscepticism than I think a lot of people understand here. For very different reasons to most other countries. While we might feel that we bailed out the German banks um, the Germans feel that Germany ends up bailing out everybody else, but there you go. It's all a question: which end of the shitty stick you feel you're on. Anyway, while they're Eurosceptic, it's not that they favour leaving the European Union, but they are very, very sceptical about the eurozone, and would be quite happy to see the return of the De- the Deutschmark. It would be argued that over the last few years, they have moved from, shall we say, a traditional centre-right Christian Democrat Eurosceptic position to a more traditionally populist right-wing position. But I imagine within the party, it's like any of these parties, Gary, you're going to find it's on a spectrum. Everything's on a spectrum, as we know these days. From Eurosceptic, say, Catholic, uh, Catholic Christian Democrats all the way to people on a populist right-wing, anti-immigrant pro-nation kind of a st- stance but uh, they are becoming more and more popular and they're doing very well particularly in the east so far in germany there has been a uh, understanding that no one is to enter into any coalitions with the afd the problem has yeah. been that the afd is now enough of a presence that if they if they become more popular again if they get, you know pick up a couple more seats very difficult to start ignoring them. And it's kind of like Sinn Féin here. Once they get in once, then they're a normal party. 
And then they can just start going in multiple times, which is why there has been such a concerted effort uh, to keep them out. And we've seen that in a couple of countries, actually. Populist parties on both the left and the right just forced outside uh, by parties who really don't agree with each other at all, simply saying, well, we're not going to go in with you. And there's always an interesting question there of, is that the will of the political parties or does that actually represent the will of voters in the country? And in the long long term, how does it work out? I mean, we're facing into a presidential election in France where there are people who think that Marie Le Pen has has a genuine chance of winning. And it's not that long when... Uh, was it uh, Chirac? Was it Chirac? Was up against Le Pen in the runoff, and the left voted for uh, the right wing candidate because what was it? If you choose, you had a choice between the fascist. Was it the thief and the fascist? Or something? Vote for the thief. So, uh, but there is Le Pen. You look at the experience in Poland, in Slovakia, in Hungary. Exiling these people from political acceptability isn't necessarily going to be the magic pill or the magic bullet that people think it is. Not if those stupid people keep voting for them in ever larger numbers. Oftentimes, these people, these parties will continue to grow in popularity. In countries, Michael, that have things like hate speech laws and will refuse to let these people on TV or cover them in respectable media alternatives. Almost like people still talk about things. Almost as if the problem these things really only become a problem it seems to me is if part of what happens and this has happened at places at different times in Europe if these things are a manifest, these parties rise up as a manifestation of anxiety that people are feeling about a number of different issues and sometimes the mistakes that it seems to me that political entrenched political parties make is not only to try and exclude these parties which are manifesting this anxiety but also to refuse to acknowledge this anxiety completely by refusing to talk about these issues refusing to say to recognize that there is actually an issue there and we need and i think to be fair if you look at britain and the tories have handled this much i think better in, and not just the toys, actually. I think Blair did it to, to a degree, and people like Trevor Howard would be... Uh, Trevor Phillips is an expression of that. That they have managed to have a discussion about, say, the nature of, of multiculturalism or immigration and borders and that kind of thing. By accepting, by not not desperately avoiding it, pretending it's not an issue, but actually saying, yes, okay, we're going to have a conversation about it. We're going to say that certain things are unacceptable and certain positions are not, are just, are beyond the pale and we will not, but that we understand that people have anxieties and concerns and we're going to talk about those. And if we can reassure them on certain things, we will. And if there are certain things that they that we feel have to be done that we haven't been doing, then we'll do those. I think that's a more mature, if we, that's, which is the word everybody loves, isn't it? Mature politics. That actually, that's the mature politics. Well, one of the most interesting things, I think, about the COVID situation has been that we've seen roughly the same things that were used against populist parties of the right and the left, kind of disruptive parties, uh, used yeah. in relation to COVID. Very much a mainlining of a particular view around COVID. I mean, 
we've talked before, Michael, about how I think we were probably the first Irish media program to come out in favour of masks at a time when the government said that they were nonsense and that they would hurt you. And that was the stance taken by media, unquestionably. And then they turned on a dime and everything just changed immediately. But there was no real, that was just a narrative change. There's no real thing to it. But the bizarre thing, Gary, was that it wasn't just that they became pro-mask. Within a few months, they were they were they they were mask Nazis. I know we 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 went from having the radical anti-government position to just being unwilling to go far enough, Michael, to do what really needed to be done to protect people. And at no point during that was was any additional evidence provided. We we went from being the the the, the oddballs who were mad pro maskers to being eventually being considered anti mask because I was, for example, my opinion: if you're on the back of a if on on the back of a horse outdoors in the rain at for traveling at forty miles an hour, chances were you didn't need to wear a mask. That was virtually made me an anti vaxxer. And we we seem to be seeing it currently with the uh, with the lab leak theory, and now the media narrative have switched from that's nonsense and racist to actually this is a very serious thing which we have to take very seriously, and let's totally ignore anything we said before this point, which again nearly seems to be swinging in the other direction, without much additional things behind it. Yeah, there's no additional information. It seems. To me, completely as a layman, com- utterly, that the balance of probability still is that it didn't come out of the lab. But it could have come out of the lab. I think the, the, th- the position I would take on it is this. If you look on a global scale, is it more likely that any newly emergent disease that appears is a natural mutation or a crossover through various animals? Or is it lab-made? The answer is always going to be, it is more likely that it is a natural occurrence. However, if you ask, is it more likely that a disease begins and crosses over to humans in a city that has one of the few labs in the world that we know studies that, and that we know is accepting money to alter these diseases, and which we know had quite poor safety standards? Then is it more likely... It had been reported within the previous two years of having serious defi- deficiencies in its, bi- its biological security. And it, what's the phrase? I, can never, I, don't think it's, I think it's a fantastic phrase. It's a phrase they use about um, this kind of study where they... Gain of function. Gain of function. Isn't, I, I don't know why, but I, I love that phrase. That they were involved in gain of function research. Yes. Now, when you, when, you, when you put it like that, you have a lab which is involved in gain of function research on this, on a coronavirus in the city of Wuhan. And that lab not only has, is doing gain of function uh, research, but also has very poor. And, they, and bizarrely, this novel coronavirus happens in Wuhan. You have to say that, yes you have a strong reason to at least take very seriously the possibility that it came from that. No, that's not to say in any way, as we've mentioned before, that it was created there, was edited or anything. That's an entirely separate question. It's a question of, is it more likely that it occurred naturally in this particular location or in some way escaped from a lab 
even if it was a totally natural thing that was carried out by one of the researchers. And I think when you, you can say globally, naturally is far more likely. But this specific location, it's very unlikely that something would emerge there in the first place. So actually, it at least means the lab theory was always something respectable. Something that should definitely be asked. I would personally suspect that knowing it's China, and knowing as we do that part of the gain-of-function research was funded by the American government, that there is a uh, very high likelihood that we're not going to be getting a definitive answer as to if it were to come from a lab, we would never get an answer that said it came from that lab. China is, is a totalitarian state. It highly prizes information control. And the US was also funding this research. So uh, it has a real incentive to not start asking too many questions about that. And a lot of the scientists in this area, if it were to come out that gain-of-function research had led to this outcome in some way, that would pretty much devastate that field and destroy quite a lot of careers. By the way, Gary, before we go, I think maybe uh, if you just briefly explain, because we're using this phrase and it's possible that some of our listeners are unaware of what precisely gain-of-function research is. So gain-of-function is... It's a complicated idea and it's a simple idea at the same time. The, the basics of it are, are quite simple. What gain of function uh, basically is, is the modification of, in this case, a disease, in order to study changes to it. So generally what would be done here is you would make diseases more lethal or you would change them in such a way that they spread more easily or you would make them that you let's say you might increase the incubation period because that might give it a higher risk of spreading around the globe because it takes longer to actually be noticed one of the things about like ebola ebola kills people so rapidly it's actually very difficult for ebola to spread globally where if, if you take you know weeks upon weeks you can just get much further afield and into population centers that is what is done. The general theory is that you do these things and then you study them so that if these things ever occur naturally, you'll be ready for them. I mean, it's important. It's, it's, this, is not, this is not a form of bio, bio warfare preparation. At least like in this case, uh, one of the things they do with coronaviruses, is that there are certain kinds of coronaviruses which are transmissible between certain species, but not between other species. So you, if you, in the case of like these, these coronaviruses are not transmissible to humans, so you change them in order to make them transmissible to humans. And what you and what you do is you you look at the different, as it was explained to me. Uh, when you go from say pangolin to pangolin, there are certain protein spikes that are involved with that will. Respond if it's human to pangolin to human, then different protein spikes. But by observing which protein spikes are involved in the, in the change to make it more transmissible to humans, that also gives you information about how you can stop that transmission. So that if it ever did happen, that there was a leap from a species leap, which sometimes does happen in nature, that you're prepared because you now understand which protein spikes are involved, so you're in a better position to produce a vaccine. So it's not necessary. It isn't. It is, it is, it is, it's a medical prophylaxis, it's a preparation, it's a protective thing. It's not in order, it's not in theory anyway designed to produce super lethal bugs to kill off people that we don't, you don't like. And Criticism that's always been uh, put against it is you are creating things on the assumption that these things may happen naturally, but now they definitely exist. And lab leaks 
are not everyday occurrences, but they do happen. And I think far more than the general public would believe they happen. It's probably best, you know, the, the argument there is that this is just a danger. There's always a risk of something like this getting out. And that's what they were doing in, in the Wuhan in the lab. And therefore, which does, uh, which does, it, as you say, it make it at the very least a perfectly respectable thing to believe rather than a, an odyssey. And, Michael, interestingly enough, there are techniques of doing this which are basically indistinguishable from natural evolution. Early techniques were very, very notable. But now there are techniques where it's very difficult to tell if something has actually been uh, edited in any way. And there was a there was a paper, I think, or a, a letter published in The Lancet from a number of scientists uh, last year saying that this was very clearly not an edited um, virus, that it was clearly naturally evolving. And they declared no conflicts of interests, Michael, so that's good to know. Unfortunately, it later turned out that the person who had put that letter together was one of the people who had been handling the funding of the Wuhan lab from American government funds on gain-of-function research, which is rather like, it is the Soviet parade of red flags of conflict of interest. So, so, so maybe, maybe just a weensy bit of a conflict of interest, actually. Yes, generally, you may be personally responsible because you would have funded it, and it involved the US government would be seen as somewhat of a, a conflict of interest, yes. Given that, you know, <laughs> a finding other than that may totally destroy your life. I was talking to somebody recently who's about who's explaining aspects of gain of function, uh, the economics behind some of it and, and the medicine and stuff. And, he's, and, and I asked him what he thought of it. He said, well, some of it probably is reasonable. But, you know, there are places in the world, Michael, where they have got hold of exceedingly dangerous and horrible viruses that are already massively communicable and will sweep through populations. And they're doing it, and they're basically just turning, they're trying to see, for the purely intellectual purpose of seeing, how can we make this even more horrible and nastier? And the thing about that, Michael, is I think, why the fuck would you do that? Uh, <laughs> why, why are you making up things that will kill everybody for no apparent benefit at all? Because there is no, there is actually no way. So, these are, he says, these are viruses that we we have no notion how to kill already. And we're making, we're putting them on anabolic steroids and we're giving them a mutant, and giving them a mutant change. So for those, I would say, let's close those labs down. Let's burn everything in them. And then maybe drop a small, very small nuclear device on top just in case. Because, but uh, I have to say that did leave me with a, I, I, I hope I don't dream about that tonight because that won't be pleasant. So there was a case where, you like this, Michael, there was an FDA storage facility and they found like a cardboard box full of vials in it that had been there. Like they don't know how long they were being there. They could have been there since the 70s. And when they, um, when they went and they tested what was in these vials, it was smallpox. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and they were just like, Whoops. Just hanging, lying around. Yeah. And then it turned out, when they looked into it, that that smallpox that they'd found, that, that they had forgotten at this shipment of biological samples. They also found um, Tengu fever, 
influenza and Q fever in the vials. They found 300 <laughs> vials and then realized that they had forgotten, not lost, but forgotten about a shipment of biological samples. All in the same sample box. Well, 300 vials, so I imagine that there was quite a number of boxes. And they just they just found it in a like a, a an FDA lab. So you had smallpox, influenza, dengue fever, and Q. So imagine, if you will, that all of these there's a, an accident and they all break, <laughs> and you suddenly have an outbreak in one place at the same time. Smallpox, influenza, Q fever, and dengue fever. That could ruin your holiday. Like, the great thing was, these were just left in the corner of, like, a cold storage area. And then the FDA, when they were asked about it, just said, well, we think they were put there in the 60s before we actually started using that area. And basically, just, no one ever asked. <laughs> That's so reassuring. And the, the great thing about this is smallpox. Smallpox is considered to be eradicated. But there's still copies of it kept around for various reasons. But it was decided in the 70s in America that all other labs, bar, I think there's two, maybe three in America, had to destroy their samples of smallpox or send them to these labs, primarily to ensure they couldn't leak. And then the FDA is just like, yeah, we just found like 12 boxes of like smallpox and dengue fever just in the corner from the six, like we just... From the 60s. And then they're like, well, don't worry. Like, they're in, like, glass, heat-resistant files. And there's no sign of tampering. To which I think people generally would, our concern is that for 50 years, you lost 300 files of these things. My Uncle Bill had dengue fever. It's apparently not very pleasant. No, it's like, it's like, if you can imagine this, a really bad dose of malaria. He used to still get it. I mean, he got it in Singapore. I suppose he would have been in his, I don't know, 30s. 40 years later, he used to still get flashbacks. It was weird. He'd be there, he'd be chatting away, drinking a gin and tonic or a pinter or whatever. And you'd notice the bill had gone quiet and suddenly he'd be there in the chair and he all colour gone and bathed in sweat. And it was really around. But that never leaves you. And he was, yeah, he very nearly died. Actually, the, like, the thing about smallpox is, like, we're talking about the... Um the infection fatality rate of COVID. And this question of, of where it is, but it's in the single digits, definitely. It may be below that, depending on... We, we don't know how many cases don't require people to go to medical attention. It's basically impossible to track bar testing everyone to see if they've ever had COVID. COVID, or smallpox, Michael, the type of smallpox that they had in these vials had a fatality rate of 30%. Oh, God. I think we have forgotten how fucking bad smallpox was. All of these things. I mean, smallpox, cholera, typhus, yellow fever. I mean, God, TB. I mean, it's only, like, it's in living memory that antibiotics were invented and slightly more than sulfur drugs. Have you ever, have you ever seen photos of, um, of people who died due to tetanus? No. I, I ha- no, that's not part of my flicking through I mean it's not what I would recommend if you were listening to this podcast at the same time you're eating tetanus tetanus you know lockjaw yeah I know if you you get a puncture wound you get you have to get a tetanus jab do you know what tetanus actually does to you if it's untreated well you go titanic don't you isn't that the thing your muscles contract You, you start spasming for weeks however 
it also kills. I'm not sure of the exact number, but it's it's definitely about 10% at least. We'll just die. And it can take months upon months to recover from tetanus. And also, like, the spasms can be strong enough that you will uh, you will rip muscular tissue off. You can break bones. But if you ever see people who have, who have died with it, the, the body kind of like seizes up and crunches in itself. It does not look like a good way to go, Michael. I think we're going to just draw close to this now, Gary, because it's getting a little bit upsetting. But like, no, the thing is that tetanus was considered incredibly dangerous to all of human history. Like, it was not a good way to die. That's that's quite a high fatality rate. And now it's yes. it's it's not even an inconvenience. Like it's it's maybe an inconvenience in that you need to go to a doctor sometimes, but it's not like it's not a thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's just true. So many things. Once you get the diver- you know, after the diver- discovery of germ theory, first germ theory and then uh, penicillin, and that, it seems to be that the next great there are two leaps leaps forward that are going to happen are in the antivirals, which for very years and years antivirals just weren't. But we seem to be making big improvements in the antivirals. And also, we've seen the leaps forward in the uh, area of uh, vaccinations, of, you know, um, that, that the, new, the new techniques and the new technologies for so many things. So hopefully that will continue. But on that uh, hopeful note, I think we'll draw... A, what, we will be back... On Friday, uh, hopefully everybody will not have got themselves burnt to a frazzle sitting in the sunshine, drinking themselves into an alcoholic coma just because you can. Actually, take this point to mention that in two weeks, we are going to be taking a week holiday. I'm just telling you that now so that you have time to properly incorporate the shock. Prepare yourselves. According to the Mayo Clinic, uh, Michael, death by tetanus is caused by muscular spasms stopping your ability to breathe. Yep, it, you basically yeah, you you go rigid and your you, 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 your diaphragm stops. You can't use your your lungs. You can't exhale or inhale, and it's just living before penicillin sucked. This is what my old Latin teacher used to say. Which can distract us here from desperately trying to end this thing. He said one of the problems. Of people looking back at the way the Romans lived and the way they experienced it, it was it was so hard for people to understand what it felt like to be alive. Your own, he said. For example, he said Romans lived with pain. Pain was just a matter. If you had an abscess, if you your your teeth, you know, probably your teeth, you get an abscess. You were in dreadful pain. If you got an infection, I mean, there was there was nothing. There was almost nothing you could do about it. There was no anesthesia. There were no antibiotics. People died. Children. Rich and poor, before the age of five, many of them died. Many women died in childbirth. If you got a cut in your leg, and you, although actually they were pretty good. I mean, we now think they're they're actually their their uh, field surgery and their field treatment was better in part than than many later. But they, when we look at their relationship that they had towards death and towards thing towards pain and suffering. It, Culturally, we have no understanding of what it was like. We've become far more sensitive and sensitized to the idea of being in pain in a way that the Roman, the ancient Roman, just wouldn't have had that attitude. Pain and suffering was just part of daily life. And it, was, it wasn't shocking or horrific to them. And when it was inflicted on somebody else, well, it's not inflicted on me, what do I care? But anyway, as I said, drawing closer, 
things, all things being equal, we should be back on Friday. And until then, everybody, mind yourselves and goodbye. All the best.